Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapters 1 through 20. Now that's going to be a little odd because we just finished the latter chapters of Isaiah, and the setting of that is really kind of post-Babylon. It's after the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding their temple. And that's kind of what Isaiah was addressing in those final chapters. And now all of a sudden, Jeremiah is pre-Babylon. So historically, we're kind of jumping all around, and now we're going to talk about what was causing Israel to go into captivity. Israel is really gone astray, and the Lord is coming and saying, hey, come back. I'll still receive you. Come back, but you are a rebellious people, and they're headed for the destruction. So we need to go back in time from where we've been the last week and redo a little bit what led to the Babylonian captivity, what were those final kings of Israel doing, what's the history here, and kind of the rebellion of the Jews that led to the captivity. Yeah. So I want to talk briefly about a series of kings that Jeremiah lived with and worked with during his ministry. So, of course, the first one's going to be Josiah. And yes, that's the Josiah that did all the reforms that we talked about, that found the book of the law and performed all of those reforms and kind of changed the religious setting in Jerusalem. That's the same Josiah. Same guy. He's going to be killed by the Egyptians at Megiddo, and you can read about that in Second Chronicles 35. And so after he's killed, his son, Jehoiakim, is made king of Judah by the Pharaoh. You see, the people that live in Jerusalem are paying tribute to Egypt at this time. And so he is the king, and they're vassals. And so after this, you know, there's this battle between Babylon and Egypt, and it's called the Battle of Carchemish, and it's in 604 BC, and Babylon wins that battle. Babylon defeats Egypt at this battle in 604 BC, and after this, alliances have to switch. The Jews have to start paying tribute, not to Egypt, but now to Babylon. And because of this, Jehoiakim actually rebels against them. And so he dies in 598 BC in what's called the first Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. So remember when Nephi says he was alive during the reign of Zedekiah, from Nephi's perspective, Babylon has already laid siege to Jerusalem and deported a bunch of members of the royal family. And so at the time when the Book of Mormon begins, the Jews that live in Jerusalem are paying tribute to Babylon, and there already is this threat that the temple could be once again laid siege, or that the city could be laid siege. And so after Jehoiakim dies, his son, Jehoiachin, he replaces him. So this is the grandson of Josiah, and his name is also Kaniah, or Jeconiah. He's a young man. He's 18 years old, and he's only going to reign for three months and 10 days. That's it. Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to capture Jerusalem, and then he's going to take Jehoiachin, and he's going to put him in chains and his household, all 3,000 of them, and they're going to be exiled to Babylon. And if you remember, when Bryce and I talked about the Second Kings narrative, this is the same king who was later released from captivity. And this is the same king that the author of Matthew chapter 1 
works to show that it's through this king that the Davidic dynasty continues, and Jesus is going to be a descendant, at least through Joseph. Now, I know that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, but according to how the Jews perceived lineage and how the kingdom would have been passed on, Jesus would have been from that line through this king, Jehoiachin. So he's taken into captivity. And so that happens because of this political discontent that's happening. And so Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, is put on the throne. Now, his name isn't Zedekiah, it's Mataniah in the text. But the Babylonians give him a throne name, and they're going to call him Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah is the son of Josiah. So I know it's kind of complicated, but it need not be. And we'll put this in the slides. We have Josiah, and then we have three of his sons that are kings and then one of his grandsons. But the final king that's in the city at the time, after Nephi leaves and when the temple sacked and the Jews are deported in 586, that king is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is put on the throne, you know, right around 597 BC. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 24. Now, he swears an oath to the king of Babylon, and then one of his friends urges him later in his life to rebel against Babylon. And so Zedekiah allies himself with Egypt. And when he does this, and when word gets back to the Babylonians, well, they come in and they lay siege. They have a, an 18th month siege at the city of Jerusalem in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. And Jeremiah is going to predict destruction coming. Lehi is going to predict destruction coming, and no one's listening. And so one of the saddest things in the history of the Old Testament is the destruction of the temple. And that happened in 586 BC, and Jeremiah lives to see it. And so it's after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 that we read that there's a certain group of Jews that flee. They go south into Egypt, and they take Jeremiah with them. And when they go down, there's actually another series of deportation of exiles to Babylon in 581. So it's a bunch of invasions. There are several deportations, and there are several takings of the city. And we'll put this in a timeline in the show notes for those of you that are interested. And I was talking to Bryce about this before we started. I said, Bryce, There's so many things going on with the book of Jeremiah that you could kind of get lost in the weeds and then not to be outdone by the complexity. The book of Jeremiah is an anthology. It's not necessarily written in story form the way 1st and 2nd Nephi is written. It's not written in story form the way the book of Alma kind of comes together. And yet there's a lot of historical events. And my take on the text, this is just me, I think later editors that had a certain political slant or a certain religious slant went back and they edited original oracles. They changed them to kind of fit their theological views. Now, that's my opinion. It doesn't mean I'm right. But as I read the book of Jeremiah, I can kind of see some of these. But I also see a lot of beautiful things that testify of doctrines of the gospel teachings of truth. There's a lot of things that Jeremiah says that coincide and align with teachings of the Book of Mormon and Christianity. So there's a lot of beauty in Jeremiah. I don't want to throw shade at the text. I just want to say I'm acknowledging that there are some complex things happening here. Now, for Latter-day Saints, the Book of Jeremiah is both haunting and thrilling. That's how I feel. 
as I study Jeremiah, there is a haunting feeling that goes throughout this as we realize the destruction of the Lord's people, the destruction of the temple, that they are going to be destroyed. And there's that haunting side. But in the ashes of that destruction rises both the need for and the hope for the Latter-day Saints. Few books have given me a vision of who we have been asked to be who we have been prophesied and seen to be. Few books have helped me understand the role of the Latter-day Saints like the book of Jeremiah has. And it's kind of fitting that as the destruction of the Jews and the conquering of the kingdom is happening, that eyes would turn to the time and place where Israel would return and be glorious. So there is in this haunting message a beautiful message for Latter-day Saints to say, do you see what we meant to them? Because we are the final chapter that ends glorious as their people are being destroyed. We kind of see this in Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, as Mormon stands there over the destruction of his people and cries out, O ye fair ones. How could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Now, we're going to talk a lot about that idea in Jeremiah, but Mormon continues, Behold, if you had not done this, you would not have fallen. But behold, you are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, O ye fair ones, how was it that you could have fallen? But behold, you are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. There's the haunting message. But why is Mormon writing this entire book? Why is he putting these gold plates together? Because he knows the glorious restoration that's coming. So out of the haunting destruction of his own people is a hope and a plea for another group of people that will rise up from those ashes and be glorious. Israel is going to be glorious again. And that's the gist of the book of Jeremiah. It's a haunting book of destruction of the past, but a wonderful book that talks about hope for the future. I think that's a good overview. It does give hope. Now, in this week's Come Follow Me, they're covering chapters 1 through 3, 7, 16 through 18, and 20. During the course of this podcast, we'll work to incorporate some things that perhaps Come Follow Me is not covering, but just know there's a lot in these 20 chapters, and so what we want to try to do is give the best that we can, and before we even get any further, just know there's a lot of different ways to break down and outline the book of Jeremiah. Some scholars break it down into 17 parts, some into about 25 parts. There's not necessarily one way. So we're going to give you a couple ways that you can look at it and outline it, but know there's many different ways to look at it. And it isn't necessarily all in order. I think it's one of those books that's just It's kind of difficult that way to put in order. Now, I would suggest as you read Jeremiah, I would highlight with three colors, maybe four. One color is God's plea to them. God standing with open arms saying, if you come back, even now, if you come back, I'll receive you. If you turn from your wicked ways and return to the Lord, I will receive you. And we can fix this. We can avoid this captivity. So that would be my first color. The other color is their response to God. I would highlight what the text says was their reply, that they didn't listen. Now, sometimes it's all within a single verse. As an example, in Jeremiah 7, verse 13, 
And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking. So God is rising up early and speaking, pleading with them to come back. That would be one color, but ye heard me not. That would be the other color. And I called you. That's the first color, but ye answered me not. Another example is verse 27. Therefore, first color, thou shalt speak all these words unto them. That's God speaking to a prophet to call them back. Second color, but they will not hear thee. First color, thou shalt call unto them. Second color, but they will not answer thee. You're going to have so many verses like that where the Lord is pleading with them to come back and they're saying, nope, we don't want to. By the way, that verse right there reminds me of Isaiah 6.10. And I actually have it written in my scriptures where the Lord says to Isaiah, you're going to talk and they're not going to get it. You're going to see, but they're not going to see. So it's a very similar message, isn't it? It is. Now, the third color I'd encourage you to use is anytime he references us, the Latter-day Saints, the hope of Israel, the days to come. When he's saying to Jerusalem, return, they won't, but a remnant will. And he quite often talks about that remnant. So those are the three main colors I would use. I might encourage you to have a fourth color, and that's things that the Lord says to Jeremiah, because he's going to kind of get beaten up. And when he gets beaten up, he's going to kind of have a conversation with the Lord that really doesn't fit those other three colors, but it's a beautiful message for us to see into the heart of a very weary prophet. So maybe a fourth color, even in chapter one, where he talks about the premortal life of Jeremiah. So I think if you'll kind of color your scriptures with those four colors, Jeremiah will become this wonderful book where you see God's plea to a wicked people to return, unfortunately, their response to him, and yet the hope of a group of people who will come back and will receive all the blessings that the Lord is offering And then we get to see insights into Jeremiah the prophet. And so as we go through this text, I'll kind of point out, you know, which color I would put on that verse. I like that, Bryce. I think sometimes finding a way to mark your scriptures in a way that works for you, just so that you can kind of make sense of some of the things happening here. Because let's be honest, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you can get lost, right? But I think big picture right here, we're looking in the first six chapters, Jeremiah's call and early prophecies concerning Jerusalem and Judah. That's kind of how I sum up these first six chapters. So we're going to begin Jeremiah chapter 1 with that fourth color and the message to Jeremiah about his call to go preach the gospel to this rebellious people. So after giving us an introduction of the history of where we are, that he starts in Josiah, he reigns during Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah, Now the Lord says in verse 5, and this is worth pausing and spending some time with your family, your children, your grandchildren, maybe a class at church. Here we have evidence of premortal life. There are not a lot of verses in the Bible where we can point to and say, see, the doctrine of premortal life is being taught in the Bible. It's mostly been taken out by editors, but in verse 5 of chapter 1, There is a clear reference to our pre-mortal life and foreordination. Now, Jeremiah got a tough call in the pre-mortal life. 
Um, he wasn't destined to come to earth with a glorious assignment where people would love him and praise him. He was destined to come to earth and do a very difficult task. But I think the Lord needed to reassure Jeremiah that you're here because I put you here. You were called and foreordained in primordial life to do this very thing, Jeremiah. So verse 5, he says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I think every one of us can take that and apply it to our lives, that God knows and knew me, and that God sanctified me and ordained me to come to earth at this time, in these circumstances, to do work for him. I am positive that your birth in the latter days is not coincidental, that he knew you in premortal life, and he called you to come forth at this time to be part of this work that Jeremiah foresaw, and to be a Latter-day Saint in our day, and to shoulder that burden of rebuilding Jerusalem. So verse 5 can be universal in its application to all of us. Then read those verbs and apply them to you. He knows and knew you, and that he sanctified you for the very assignments you've been given in these latter days. You've been ordained to something great. And by great, I don't necessarily mean something that everyone acknowledges as great. Maybe it's just what the world would say would be an ordinary thing of being a parent to your family or a primary leader to a group of primary students who love you and adore you and that you're going to turn their lives around. It's those types of assignments that God considers to be great. And he set apart and ordained you to something important to him. I really like what Joseph Smith said, where he said, every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before the world was. So I think Jeremiah 1 verse 5 and Joseph Smith's teaching here, and also we could say Alma 13 and the book of Abraham as well, really teach this idea that the Lord knows what he's doing and that he has a grand design that's kind of bigger than what you and I could consider. I really like this commentary by Dana Pike, where he says, Jeremiah was chosen by God before being formed in the womb, somewhat similar in concept to the passage in Isaiah 49, where Israel is designated as the Lord's servant, whom he called from the womb. Subsequent verses repeat the idea that the Lord's servant was formed from the womb to be his servant. We read that in Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. While commentators dispute the identity of this servant, the point emphasized here is that the servant was chosen by Jehovah before birth to accomplish his will. Taken as a whole, the Hebrew Bible depicts Jehovah as the universal ruler of heaven and earth who elected or chose a particular lineage, Abraham and Sarah's descendants, in this case through Isaac and Jacob, and who chose particular individuals within that lineage to accomplish his purposes all within a covenant relationship. And that's really what we see here, is we see 
Jeremiah is being chosen. The Lord says, I knew who you were. And I like Jeremiah's response in verse six. It's very common amongst prophets. Because I don't see right. You know, I'm born into this world and I don't remember my premortal life. I don't remember being foreordained. So I think this response is kind of typical of all of us. Yeah. I totally relate with Jeremiah where he says, Ah, Lord, behold, I cannot speak for I am a child. And the Lord comforts him in verse seven and says, you know, you don't have to say that. Go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And the Lord put his hand, and he touched my mouth. Now, if you remember Isaiah's call narrative, where the coal touched his mouth. And if you think about the Lord in his all his glory touching my mouth, that would be like a coal, the brightness of God, right? The glorious nature of who he is. Verse 9 continues of chapter 1. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into thy mouth. See, I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, and to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. So there's there's an interesting couple of symbols here. There's some taking out, but then we're fixing things and we're putting them back. I think all of us kind of need to take that same message to heart. Be not afraid of their faces. The Lord will be with us. He'll be with us in my primary class. He'll be with me when I stand up and teach gospel doctrine. He will be with us in our parenting. He says, I have called you. I have sent you forth. So for for all of you who are young mothers and you look at your calling as a mother and you see yourself as inadequate and you say to the Lord, ah, Lord, I don't know how to raise these children and I worry that I'm going to mess it up. He says, I'm going to be with you. This is one of the things you were called and set apart to do. I will be with you. I will help you. Don't be afraid. You can do this. I will deliver you. I will put words into your mouth. I will put thoughts into your head and into your heart. And sometimes we're going to have to pull down. Even in families, I'm going to I'm going to help you discipline those children when you need to. Sometimes we'll lift up. So I think all of us can take these words to heart with whatever we've been called to do. He is going to be with us. And we need to do our best. Now, at the very end of chapter 1, he gets back to that idea of don't be afraid. Verse 17, speak unto them all that I command thee, but not dismayed at their faces. You don't need to apologize for truth. You don't need to back down and you don't need to change because other people don't like it. Stand in truth. Verse 18, I have made thee this day a defensed city and an iron pillar and a brazen walls against the whole land. In other words, I will be with you. I had a marvelous experience in Mexico numerous times when my safety was threatened by people who did not want us to be there. But I felt the Lord's protection around me, like he was making me a defense city. And as long as I would valiantly proclaim his name, he would be with me and protect me. Verse 19, they shall fight against thee. I hear echoes of Carthage jail and tarring and feathering of Joseph Smith, as well as what sometimes happens to missionaries in the field, and maybe even to parents, maybe their children say this, they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. Why? 
for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. That's this beautiful calling of Jeremiah, and we need to find in it a message for each one of us. We were each called and set apart and sanctified to do something. Maybe it's lots of things here on earth. Be valiant in that call. Be courageous. You don't need to bow down because people don't want to hear it. State the truth with conviction, and the Lord will make you a defense city and be with you the whole time. Excellent. So Jeremiah has a vision, and then assumptions of his hearers, or maybe even his own assumptions, get in the way of understanding how the Lord is working. Now, in this vision, he's going to see two things. He's going to see an almond tree and a seething pot turning towards the north. And so we read this, chapter 1, verse 13. The word of the Lord came unto me the second time and said, What seest thou? And I said, A seething pot, and the face thereof is towards the north. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north, and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Now, this isn't the only place where this prophecy is given. You see, Jeremiah is given a vague description of enemies coming from the north several times. And I'm just going to give you these references. Jeremiah 4, 6, 6, 1, 6, 22, Jeremiah 10, verse 22, and Jeremiah 13, 20. In those verses, it's a general description of an invader coming out of the north. Now, later in his ministry, Jeremiah will identify the danger as the Babylonian forces. That really starts in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, and Jeremiah 21. But there's others. We put it in the show notes. You can go check that out. My point is that Jeremiah's prediction that an enemy would come from the north, in my opinion, gets him in a lot of trouble. Some people may have looked at Jeremiah as a prophet who doesn't know what he's talking about. It's going to get him arrested. It's going to get him thrown in stocks, and it's going to get him in all kinds of problems. But it will even end with what we read today in the 20th chapter in what some scholars call the confessions of Jeremiah. I call these laments, but it doesn't matter what you call them. He basically accuses the Lord of deceiving him. In many translations, that's how it reads. If you go to the King James uh, version in chapter 20, look what he says to the Lord. And we'll come back to this and talk more about it in just a minute. This is just to kind of set it up. So this is verse 7. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I am and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. And he's really frustrated. And he's lamenting that he's been tempted or that he's been deceived. And so here's one way to read this, and what I'm about to say doesn't necessarily mean that it happened this way, but all I'm trying to do is to try to put these laments of Jeremiah in their historical context. Beginning with the time period when Jeremiah is called to be a prophet, we read from the 5th century Greek historian Herodotus about a group of invaders that were really powerful. They were called the Scythians. They were masters of Asia, and they marched south all the way down to invade Egypt right about the time that Jeremiah is giving these prophecies of an invader from the north. And so as they're coming down along the coastline of Syria and going through Palestine, 
Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but I think that there were probably some people that lived in and around Jerusalem that were under the assumption that the Scythians were going to come and get them as well. I think that would be a reasonable assumption. If you lived there at the time and there were these invaders and they were fast and they were powerful, they were mighty horsemen, and you have a prophet in the city saying an enemy's coming from the north, the assumption would be, okay, it's these guys. So here's what happened historically. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, we actually link it. You can go and you can read the histories, chapter one, starting in 103, and just read what he's telling you. But what I'm trying to do is take Herodotus's history and put it in context of what's going on in Jerusalem. So that's what we're doing here. So once these forces from the north arrive at Egypt to invade they get bribed. The Pharaoh comes out and gives them a bunch of gifts and says, hey, how about we give you these gifts and you don't invade Egypt? And they take the gifts and then the Scythians come north. So now, first of all, if you're in Jerusalem, you're like, we we dodged a bullet, they didn't invade. But now they're coming north. And as they do, they plunder the temple in Ascalon, what's called the Temple of Aphrodite. And when they do this, they sack the city. And once again, everyone thinks they're coming, but they don't. They basically return to Asia, and they rule for 28 more years, and they even dominate the Assyrians. I mean, that's what a big deal they are. And so this scholar, S. Kent Brown, says that this invasion that never happened is what the people in Jerusalem expected in connection to the prophecies of the enemy coming from the north, at least in the early oracles of Jeremiah. And so Brown argues that the Scythians and their incursion into the lands surrounding Judah happened during this time period, and the dates totally line up. And so knowing this, we can see why perhaps Jeremiah is frustrated. Why is he frustrated? I mean, first of all, he's probably not frustrated in the sense that they're not being attacked, but maybe the assumption was that these individuals, this mighty army coming from the north that takes out the cities that are around Jerusalem and they don't attack Jerusalem, that some people may have looked at Jeremiah as a prophet who doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, the irony to all of this is an enemy does come from the north, but it's going to happen later, right around 600 BC. And so remember, Jeremiah's early oracles are probably right around 627. We're trying to give you some context here. And remember, if we're doing BC, the numbers are getting smaller when we're dealing with years before Christ. So Jeremiah in 627 BC is giving these oracles. The Scythian incursion is right around 620 to 616 BC. And the Babylonian incursion into Jerusalem really isn't going to happen until around 600. Right. So Jeremiah has this vision of destructive invaders coming from the north. And maybe he makes an assumption, or maybe the people make the assumption that it's the Scythians. And then the Scythians don't come. And whether the people are accusing Jeremiah of being a false prophet or Jeremiah maybe feels frustrated that he gave a prophecy that doesn't come to pass, he's going to give us some laments. Now, eventually, Jeremiah is going to be proven to be prophetic because invaders do come from the north, and those are the Babylonians, many, many years later. But I want to just talk a little bit about that because I think we do this all the time. We do it with our patriarchal blessings. We do it with expected blessings from the Lord. We get an impression from the Lord, and we interpret what it means. And then when that doesn't happen, sometimes we conclude that the Lord's prophecy was wrong. But it's probably not that the Lord's prophecy was wrong, but our expectations of the prophecy can be wrong. 
Sometimes we read our patriarchal blessings and we assume it means this. Oh, I'm going to get married and have lots of children. And then if someone doesn't get married and doesn't have lots of children, we assume that the prophecy was wrong. One of the most important things I have learned is not to put my expectations on the Lord's promises, to allow the Lord's promises to come to fruition His way. Invaders are coming from the north, people, but they're not the Scythians. They're the Babylonians. If you wait upon the Lord, like we saw so much in Isaiah, we will see His hand revealed. So be careful not to put your expectations on what the Lord says. Let the Lord declare what His prophecies mean. Let His prophecies come to fruition. See, this is the very problem with what happened in Jerusalem with Jesus. They put expectations on the prophecies of a Messiah, that a Messiah will do this. They were the ones that assumed that the Messiah would conquer Rome. There isn't a single prophecy that said, oh, by the way, the Messiah is going to conquer Rome and free you and make you an independent state. But they made those assumptions that a Messiah would free them. But the reality is that the prophecies really had to do with being freed from death and sin far more than being prophesied from someone you thought would go away. And yet, I can't help but defend the people that had that interpretation because we have the Psalms and we have Isaiah. We have all these cosmic prophecies of this reigning cosmic king and everything's going to be fixed. So I'm just acknowledging the the complexity and seeing both sides. It's and by the way, Jer- Jeremiah is going to get frustrated, yeah, right? It's easy to do because you read these prophecies and, oh, clearly my patriarchal blessing says I'm going to have children. How else do I interpret that line in my blessing? And then children don't come. It's kind of a natural assumption to put expectations on blessings. But it is my testimony that everything God prophesies comes to pass in His way, in His timing, not necessarily in ours. So listen to these laments with that mindset as to say, okay, I'm going to be cautious and try and avoid the same lament by letting the Lord dictate the terms and waiting to see how the Lord fulfills the promise. I like that. I think that's important. So there are several laments, or also called confessions, that Jeremiah gives. In Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 18 to 12, verse 6, people in his own hometown plot to kill him, and Jeremiah laments. I want to go to the 15th chapter, though. So in the, in the context of his own people want to kill him, this is Jeremiah lamenting, and it's in verses 10 through 21. And I want to read a couple of these verses, and we're going to look at a couple of different translations of verse 18. But here is verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. And essentially, he says in verse 10, I haven't lent people money, which was a big deal back then, and yet... People still curse me, he says in verse 10. The Lord said in verse 11, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily will I cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Now, another translation of that is, Surely a remnant of you will I spare for a better fate. I really like that. So in the midst of this lament, it's almost like, 
what we read in Isaiah where it says a remnant shall return. In other words, it's not the end, the Lord says to him. And so we're still in chapter 15 of Jeremiah. Look in verse 15. Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou knowest, remember and visit me, and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And then at the end of the verse, he says, I have called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. And then here's his complaint, verse 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? So essentially in verse 18, Jeremiah is calling the Lord a liar and one who is as waters that fail. Here's another translation. I really like this. This is a lot more literal in the Hebrew, and it reads like this. Why is my pain unending and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? You have indeed become like a mirage to me, water that is not there. That's a pretty powerful indictment against the Lord. Now, here's the NIV's translation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. And so essentially in this, in the context of this prophecy, I totally get it that Jeremiah sees something and maybe even he interpreted the Scythian invasion as the enemy from the north and it doesn't happen. Now, we don't know. There are just gaps here. But remember, when Nephi has the vision of the tree of life, and then we have a series of visions in the beginning of 1 Nephi, we read in the visions that it's this angel that's with Nephi to help him to see and understand and put things in context. And I just offer this as as an idea that maybe when a prophet has a vision, they don't have the full context, and they learn like we do, and we get revelation in packets. That I'm just I'm just open to that possibility. And so here's S. Kent Brown's commentary on this. He says, here mentioning his injury which seemingly could not be healed, Jeremiah dared to refer to God as failing waters. In a word, the prophet was distressed. What had gone wrong? Significantly, this outburst led the Lord generously to reconfirm Jeremiah's prophetic calling, almost, as noted earlier, in the very words of his original commission. You see, look at this. Look what the Lord says to him in verse 19. If you return, I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall, and they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. Now, in the context of this, we need to note that Jeremiah gives these prophecies, and they do. They want to kill him. And they eventually do put him in bonds, and they throw him in a dungeon, and it's not fun for him. And so we know this because we read it in the third confession. If you read chapter 17, verses 9 through 18, Jeremiah's enemies cry out, where is the word of the Lord? And Jeremiah begs for it to come, and he says, I want the word of the Lord to come right now. And so in the context of all this, his enemies get him, and Jeremiah cries out, and these confessions or laments are part of this story of Jeremiah. And it's kind of moving through history, 
and politics and everything in this book doesn't happen at once. Jeremiah covers a massive period of time. I mean, the book of Jeremiah covers all the time period from before the destruction of the temple, before the destruction of the city. Remember, there's at least three deportations to exile into Babylon, and then it ends with Jeremiah going into Egypt and Finally, even there's a reference in the 52nd chapter to Jehoiachin being released from prison in Babylon. And even there's these oracles where Jeremiah gives these oracles of the future, that things are going to happen to Babylon. So it covers a massive time period. But I think in the context of this, what I want to just acknowledge is that it's messy, that Jeremiah is struggling and he had this expectation and it isn't happening but it does. It will happen later. So I'm just trying to acknowledge that difficulty. I think this can apply in so many ways from the Jews and their expectations of Jesus to how many times do we do this where we read something historically or we read a scripture and we're we're struggling and the Lord says, yeah, do you trust me? A good example of this is I think everybody in the 19th century thought that everybody who lived in the Americas was a descendant of Lehi. And that was just a common assumption, but the Book of Mormon never makes that statement. But we all assumed it until DNA comes out, and then we rewrite Bruce McConkie's introduction. And what's interesting, Mike, is in section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord is organizing the church and telling the church the role that prophet plays— He says, his word you shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. That phrase has stuck with me for so many years, that I as a member of the church need to hear the prophecy that comes from a prophet in all patience and faith. And I think one of the things I learned from Jeremiah is sometimes even the prophet itself has to take the words that come from the Lord in patience and faith. You may think that this prophecy has failed, but hold on. Be patient and have faith, Jeremiah, and you will see that the prophecy does come to pass. I like that. I think that's a really good analysis of what's going on here. And I think we're all like that. In this sense, we're all like Jeremiah, aren't we? So kind of continuing that fourth color I talked to you about, that he was called from premortal life, he has a vision, perhaps he misinterpreted what that vision meant, and people clearly did as well, and so they deride him, and they threaten his life, and Jeremiah gets a little frustrated. That kind of culminates in a beautiful and yet frustrating verse in chapter 20. Now, this is where the prophecy begins to change that it's Babylon, that Babylon's coming. The first part of chapter 20 is that Babylon is the one that's coming, and to clarify that. But that lament that Mike was talking about starts in verse 7. The frustration of Jeremiah that, hey, you told me to prophesy that destruction was coming, and no destruction came, and now I'm in the stocks. And so verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, every one mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Now, in the stocks, I think he has this moment, verse 9, where he says, you know what? I'm done. 
I can't do this anymore. I prophesied destruction was coming and it never came. And here I am in the stocks and everyone hates me. My own city hates me. Everyone wants to beat me up. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stop prophesying. I'm just going to stop. So in verse 9, he says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Now this absolutely beautiful moment. I can just picture this in that moment of frustration. He then has this moment of clarity and these beautiful words. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. Even though he seems to be frustrated that the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled and that people hate him and that he's in the stocks. And he says, okay, fine. I'll just stop talking about God. I'll stop preaching. I can't. I just can't. I can't not do it. I love that phrase. His word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I couldn't not do it. And so here I am, I'm going to tackle it again. And I think the idea here is that sometimes when we have that frustrating moment that a prophecy or an impression didn't come to fruition the way I thought it would, we've all seen people walk away from God because things didn't happen the way they thought they should happen. But hopefully there's this beautiful moment of I can't walk away. It's Peter where Jesus says, are you going to walk away? And he says, where would I go? Now, Mike and I, over the course of our podcast, have kind of talked about this natural tendency for members of the church to sometimes be all the way over on one side of an extreme and be what I call the innocent optimists, that everything's perfect, that The revelations come and the prophet speaks and they're fulfilled and prophets are perfect and everything in the church is absolutely perfect. And there are people kind of hold to that position. They're the innocent optimists. But then something happens like Jeremiah makes a prophecy and it doesn't come to pass. Or we read church history and we discover that the history of the church is filled with human beings who do human things. And we recognize that prophets are fallible, or prophet does something or says something, and it doesn't come to pass. So sometimes we swing all the way over to the other side of the extreme, and we become what I call pessimists. We go from the innocent optimist, now we're the disillusioned pessimist. And we've all watched some people who, because the history of the church is full of human errors— who now become pessimists and fight against God. But what I would hope and pray would happen is that we find this middle ground between the innocent optimist and the disillusioned pessimist. And that's to me what happens in verse 9 with Jeremiah. He was all hopeful that the Lord's prophecies were going to come to pass, and then it appears they didn't come to pass the way he thought they would, so he kind of becomes discouraged, and he's tempted to leave the work. But he finds what I call this middle ground. 
It's what I call open heart and open mind. It's the realization that while prophets are imperfect and they make mistakes, they really do have something unique to them. They really do have prophetic call. You can be imperfect and still be a prophet. The history of this church can be filled with human error and still be the kingdom of God. That there's this neutral ground where instead of saying, I'm going to just stop talking about it, we have the moment in verse 9 where Jeremiah says, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. That's that middle ground. I am aware of the shortcomings and the frailties of human beings, even prophets. But I, something inside my soul is calling out to me that this work is divine. Yes, it's done by human beings who make mistakes, but the work is divine. So let's be aware of the humanness of church leaders and histories, and let's feel the call of God to his work and find that middle ground of open heart, open eyes, and open mind. And then the Lord can really do his work. Beautiful. Look in the last bit of chapter 20, starting in verse 14. Jeremiah is in a bad space, and he's in that space where I am not liking any of this. and Wish I had never been born. And nothing is fitting my expectations. Verse 14 reads, Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore, came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame? This lament is right in line with Job chapter 3. He wishes he was never born. And I think a really good way to, to use this and maybe to apply this is if we have people that we know that are really frustrated, they're thinking, you know what, I'm on my way out. I don't want to be a person of faith. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just listen and sit with them. Kind of like what we read back when we talked about Job. Job's three friends just sat with yeah. him in his agony. Just sit with them and be with them. And know, and I do believe this, that there will be a new day. And in Jeremiah's lifetime, there will be a new day. Now, the sad part and the hard part about Jeremiah is he's vindicated when Babylon does come. And that's not very nice. Like, that's not a great way to be vindicated. But it really is in this chapter, in the 20th chapter, where he starts to identify the enemy from the north as Babylon. If you look in verse 5, he says, Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors thereof, and then all the treasures and so forth, into Babylon. That's the end of verse 5. And he had said in verse 4, I will give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive there it is. into Babylon. There's the fulfillment of the prophecy. But it's sad to be vindicated 
his vindication comes with the complete destruction of the temple and the carrying away of his people into Babylon. And, and we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to see that. But just know that this is this is a really rough thing. I think you know what we've tried to do is to put in context the laments of Jeremiah, but also to teach it in such a way where we can see that he, you know the prophets are vindicated. You give them time, and they will be vindicated. But it is difficult. And also, think about this. If you're Jeremiah, and you're walking around, and you're telling people that Babylon is going to come in and take over the city and take over your army, you could see why maybe some people that are associated with the military, or maybe they have political ties, they would look at Jeremiah as a traitor. And they're like, you're a traitor to us. And Jeremiah's like, no, actually, I'm your best friend. Let me give you keys whereby you guys can maybe lessen the destruction. Because the Lord's going to tell Jeremiah, hey, this is happening, but there's ways that you can kind of indemnify yourselves from some of the destruction. And one of them is to submit, to submit to the powers that be. And if you do that, things are going to work out. But nobody wants to listen to Jeremiah because, you know, prophets aren't always listened to. It's a challenging thing. They give messages that maybe aren't always popular. So that's kind of big picture um, what's happening here with the laments. So do you see how that's that fourth color we've been talking about? We kind of took that fourth color throughout the first 20 chapters of Jeremiah so that you could see what's going on with Jeremiah. Called, ordained, prophesies, it doesn't happen, frustration, and yet he finds that middle ground. I know the Lord is with me. Now let's go back to the other three colors. God extending the arm out that even now, if you come back, you could be saved. But what was their reaction? And then the prophecy of the Latter-day Saints. So let's go back to chapter 2. And notice the Lord says, okay, here's the message that you're sending out. So this is my color number one. Verse two, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. Why can't you go back to that? Why can't you go back to what we were? Instead, the Lord says in verse 5, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? And then he says, you know, I took you to this land in verse 7, but you defiled my land. Now, there's a thread that's woven through Jeremiah that the people are caught up in idolatry. That is a message that's in Jeremiah. And my take on it, this is just me, I think some of this probably was edited by the later editors, but that doesn't mean I'm right. I mean, there probably was some of that idolatry happening. But for me, I see the main sin going on here is this rebellion against Babylon is probably one of the main things. And then the other way I look at the main sin that the Israelites were doing is the message that I read from Lehi that Lehi is teaching something that the elders of the Jews don't like, essentially that the temple is being taken over by corrupt leaders and that they're rejecting this redeeming Messiah. The message of the redeeming Messiah who will come down and die, in my opinion, 
is not expressly clear in the book of Jeremiah, which to me lends me to believe that Jeremiah has been edited by the very elders of the Jews that Lehi fought against. And so I'm just acknowledging the presence of editing, and I'm going to read the message of Jeremiah through Lehi's lens. And I, I'm just, I'm showing you guys my cards. I'm biased. I believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. And that's where I'm going to go with my reading of Jeremiah. Fantastic. You see it in verse 8 of chapter 2, even the priests aren't questioning what's going on. Even the priests aren't saying, hey, where's the Lord? Where's truth? We've departed from truth. They that handle the law know me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. You've walked away from Christ who will save you? Now, this idea is going to come up quite often in this, is that you've rejected God, and now I can't help you. Joseph Smith had a dream once where the people who were kind of turned against him and hated him threw him into a pit, and then they were attacked by snakes, and they cry out to Joseph, help me, help me, help me, and he couldn't because they had put him in a position where he couldn't help them. And that's what the Lord is kind of saying here. You have put me into a position where I can't help you anymore. He even kind of uses that idea of a pit. He even kind of hints at that way forward in chapter 18. He says, shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them and to turn away from thy wrath from them. Then he says in 22, let a cry be heard from their houses when thou shalt bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have digged a pit to take me and hid snares for my feet. In other words, by rejecting God, we don't worship a heavenly father that if you don't obey him gets mad and seeks revenge. We worship a heavenly father who knows what is best for us and commands us to do the things that will bring us happiness. If we reject heavenly father, We reject the very things that he knows will make us happy. And so we put ourselves in a position where he can no longer help us because we've walked away from his help. And that's the idea here is once they threw Joseph into that pit and the snakes attacked them, he couldn't help them. Once we push God out of our lives and then all of a sudden turn around and say, hey, can you help me? He can't help us. He can't help us in the day of trouble just like we saw in Jackson County. In section 101, the Lord says, in the day of trouble, of necessity, you feel after me. But in the day of peace, you didn't seek my counsel. And there was a day when a prophet came into Zarahemla and said, get out of the city because fire's coming. If you heeded the prophet in that day of peace, you got out safely. But if you didn't, the day the fire comes, you're not going to be able to get out safely. So that's the second color. He's offering to help them, but they've rejected him. What is it that these Jews did that are going to lead to the Babylonian captivity? So let's go back to chapter 2 and take a look at that. So we've seen the invitation. We've seen the lament of God that, hey, where did Israel of the past go? Look what you've become. Verse 11 of chapter 2, hath a nation changed their gods? 
which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate. And then he gives this verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me the fountain of living water. Now, what's going to happen if you walk away from the fountain of living water and the heat of the sun hits you? Two, they have hewed them out cisterns, or I could say canteens, broken canteens that can hold no water. Worshiping a God that can't save you is like having a canteen filled with holes in the desert. First, you walked away from the source of the water. And now that you're in the heat of the sun, what you chose instead is full of holes. And now when you're thirsty, there's no water because you walked away from it. Do you see what he's saying to Judah? You know, since we're here, Bryce and Jeremiah 2, look in verse 30. In vain I have smitten your children. They received no instruction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Now, in context, there's not a lot of prophets dying right now, at least that we read about. But we have this legend of Isaiah being killed by Manasseh. Now, that's not in the Bible, but we refer to it in the Ascension of Isaiah, and it's in other texts. But that may be a reference to Isaiah being killed. And the Lord saying, I've tried to correct you guys and you're not listening, which may also, I'm just going to say this, verse 30 could be a shout out to people like Lehi that are these visionaries that are standing up and that are giving a certain message, but it's not being heard by the elites in Jerusalem. Therefore, the prophets are leaving. That could just be a possibility. Now, you know, I don't know, but it could be. It's kind of like when the people of Noah were fooled into thinking Noah's their friend and Abinadi's their enemy, and then they destroy Abinadi. They destroy the prophet, and then when they discover that Noah really is an enemy and they look around for a friend, where's our friend? Where's our guide? Where's our leader? Oh, we burned him. That's the idea here. And so the Lord says in verse 19, and this is a harsh reality. It's not that God is punishing us. It's that by walking away from God, we've positioned ourselves to not be able to be healed by him. So in verse 19, he says, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. You have put me in a position where I can't heal you and help you. And now you're going to learn a lesson from your pain. In verse 27, he kind of puts a symbol to their pain, saying to a stalk, thou art my father. And to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me and not their face. That is a haunting phrase. Judah has turned their back unto me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will rise up and say, save us. Save us, Lord. We're hurting. We're in pain. Make my pain go away. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee, 
in the time of thy trouble. Do you see the lament? that This is that second color that they are rejecting God. And when the pain hits, they cry out and say, hey, save me, Lord. And the Lord is saying, I can't. I can't. You have put yourself in a position that you have to be held accountable for your actions. And this is the day of your trouble. So I think the culmination here is in verse 25 at the end when they say, this is Judah, there is no hope, no, for we have loved strangers and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. Going back to the Garden of Eden, they are naked and ashamed. They have removed their covering. They have no coats of skins to cover them. And hence, you see that idea? If you follow Christ, he covers us and protects us. If you walk away from Christ, you take away that covering. And now you are naked and ashamed. So, kind of continuing that second color, let's jump to seven and kind of watch that theme that they have rejected and walked away from their God. They've walked away from the temple. Yeah. We can look at chapter seven through 10, verse 25, as Jeremiah's temple sermon. And we kind of give you a great outline in the show notes that you can kind of look through it. But really what I wanted to emphasize is in this temple sermon, it starts off by him encouraging the people to amend their ways. That's verse five. And then notice there's a bunch of if-then statements. We read in verse five, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment, remember that's the word for fairness between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood, then, verse seven, I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave your father's forever and ever. That's a big deal. And I I look at that as a core message of Jeremiah's message. Now, starting in verse 9, I think this is evidence of Deuteronomistic editing. We have this uh, attack or polemic against other gods. That's verse 9. But then if you skip to verse 12, I like this verse where he says, but go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. Essentially what Jeremiah is saying in verse 12 is just because we have a holy sanctuary here, remember Shiloh was attacked in, in history. And so what Jeremiah is trying to remind his listeners of is this idea that, hey, just because we have the temple, like that doesn't mean that um, everything's going to be okay. And then a few times in the text, the Lord gives this message. It's in 716, where he says, pray not for this people. Um, I really see verse 16 connected to the story of Mormon when he was the general for the Nephite armies. And he basically acknowledges that his prayer for his people was in vain. So there's a few places where we read this. And then there's an, more attacks against what's called the queen of heaven. And if you're interested in this and what's going on here historically, we put that in the show notes because we could have a whole podcast on the queen of heaven. So we're just going to say, go to the show notes and we'll just end it at that. But the overarching message is this idea that the house is out of order. You could almost summarize it in 23 and 24 of chapter seven, but this thing commanded I them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God 
and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imaginations of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be hard. This sermon, this vision that he has, it's really got to be hard. I think chapter 9, verse 1 really illustrates this, where he weeps for his people. He writes, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. It's so difficult for him to see. And so he does in the 10th chapter condemn the nations that oppress Israel. And so in that 10th chapter, he talks about these other people that oppress them and condemns them. And so that's kind of big picture of what what I call the temple sermon. There's lots of verses in here where he gives these predictions. For example, if you look in chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without inhabitant. And why? Over and over again, this message is given, verse 13 of chapter 10. The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law and have not obeyed my voice. So, I mean, there's just not one place where he's saying this. It's it's continual throughout his message. Now, the last thing I want to talk about are the symbolic actions of Jeremiah. And there's three of them in this part of Come, Follow Me. The first is in the 13th chapter. Chapter 13 is not covered by Come, Follow Me, but we read in the first 11 verses that Jeremiah is told to take a girdle and carry it to the Euphrates River. Now, I don't know if this is literal or this is done in vision, but in verse four, he's told to go to Euphrates and hide the girdle in a hole of a rock. And so he says, I did, and I went, and I did as the Lord commanded me. So after he hides the girdle near the Euphrates, he walks back home. And then in verse six, the Lord says, I want you to go back and get it. So he walks all the way back and he goes and he gets it. But when he digs it up in verse seven, it's it's all like, worthless. It's just in tatters. And then the Lord explains why he had him do this symbolic action. He says in verse nine, after this manner, will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem? So in my opinion, this is a simile curse. Just as this piece of clothing has been tattered, so shall my people be tattered. And it's a great symbolic action. It really makes sense in the ancient Near Eastern context, but it's kind of weird to us, especially when we talk about all that walking to get a girdle. And did he do this? I don't know, but I like it. I like to read it and to try to understand it and talk about how Jeremiah fits in the context of his day. The second symbolic act is in Jeremiah 18, and that's in the first 12 verses. And that's where Jeremiah is told to go to the house of the potter, and that the potter is really related to the verb in Hebrew, which is translated as to form. And so this potter, a yotzer, is a former, a yatsar, which is really kind of a cool pun. And the idea is related to God and his creative power. The first time we're going to come across this verb is in Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8. Um, What we see here is that he goes to the potter's house and the clay that is on the wheel is like the house of Israel. I think the really important verse here is verse six. And so just like the potter can reform the clay, and as it's on the wheel, if it doesn't make the right shape, he can kind of remold it. That's essentially what God is saying in the 18th chapter is, I'm in charge, I'm the potter, trust me and let me do my work. I think that's a really good interpretation of that. And then the final uh, symbolic action we're gonna talk about is the 19th chapter. 
This is where he stands in the public space. So he goes, we read in verse 2, to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate. And he basically takes this earthen jug or this clay jug and he breaks it. He smashes it. And then he says, as I'm smashing this, this is what's going to happen to you guys. You guys are going to have this destruction. We read this in verse 11. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, even so will I break this people and this city as one breaketh the potter's vessel. And so chapter 19 is this powerful message that Jeremiah gives in a public space to everyone about what's going to happen, and the people don't want to hear it. And so I really like to put these three under the title of Jeremiah's Symbolic Actions. And it really helps us understand that there are many different ways that he tried to teach these ideas to his people, and he really was a warning voice, helping them to see what was coming, what was down the road. So now let's get to that third color. And this is the part of Jeremiah we really need to understand, the vision that he had of our day and what we would do and who we would be. Back in chapter 3, he's basically saying to Judah, didn't you learn anything from Israel, from the northern tribes, from the Assyrians coming down? Do you remember how I pled with them? Do you remember how I gave them a chance? to return and I would have saved them. Do you remember? How come you're not learning from Israel? That's kind of the gist of chapter three, but he's going to go back to color one and two. So I love verse one because it really is that first color. This is God extending the arm of comeback. Verse one, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? In this world, how many men who have a cheating wife would let them come back? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. That's the kind of God that we worship. No matter what we've done. This goes along with where Isaiah says, but my thoughts are not your thoughts. In that same setting, he was saying, I don't think like ordinary men. I don't hold grudges and resentment. If you come back, I will welcome you back. And we can be clean again. We can be a couple again. That is astounding if you think about that in terms of an earthly comparison, that God says, you've cheated on me, but come back and I will cleanse you. Verse five, he says, will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? The answer is no. Verse 7, And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. There's still hope. This is what he said to Israel. After all that she had done, turn now. But, here's the second color, Even now we're up in the northern tribes, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So why didn't you learn the lesson? You saw me extend a branch of forgiveness to the Israelites up north, and they rejected it and went into captivity. So why are you doing the same thing? Verse 8, for I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not 
but went and played the harlot also. Why didn't you learn? I would have welcomed her back, and I will welcome you back. So again, he's back to stocks and stones. Verse 9, committed adultery with stones and with stocks. But verse 12, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Now watch him transition from Judah and Israel's rebellion to our glorious day. In verse 13, still of chapter 3, but in verse 13, this is what he's asking them to do, but what we will do. This is what the Latter-day Saints are going to do that he asked them to do, but they didn't do. So verse 13 of chapter 3, only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. For I am married unto you, and I will take you. See, here's the transition. I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Do you see how we just transitioned into our day? Now, here's our day. Here is the wife who at one point was estranged, who left her husband, who is now coming back and is going to be the faithful wife. Israel in the latter days, is going to be a faithful bride. Starting in verse 15, I will give to you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. It shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days. Notice the in those days. We're going to get a whole lot of in those days. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of God, neither shall it come to mind. In other words, we are new Israel, not old Israel. At that time, see, it's a, it's a foreshadowing. Verse 17, at that time shall they call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, a new Jerusalem. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imaginations of their evil hearts. I'm just hearing Doctrine and Covenants section 1, just screaming in the back of my head. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. That's the beautiful prophecy of our day. Verse 20, surely as the wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O current house of Israel, day of Jeremiah, saith the Lord. A voice was heard upon the high places. So while God was destroying the Israelites and the Jews in this day, he was weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. He was praying for Israel, for they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we will come unto thee, for thou art the Lord 
our God. Do you just see that call for who we are? We must be the faithful bride, whereas they left him. We must be faithful to him. That leads us to 16. In verse 10, he's kind of quoting the Jews when the destruction comes, looking around saying, why did this happen? I thought we were the Lord's people. They're going to say, wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord? And then Jeremiah is going to say to them in verse 11, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my laws, and you've done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore, here's the prophecy, not just of the Babylonian captivity, but I would contend, here's the prophecy of the apostasy as well. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you know not, neither ye nor your fathers, and there ye shall serve other gods day and night. There's the apostasy. In chapter 18, verse 17, he will say, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. Now, we've talked about that. Because Israel wanted to live like the world, she will be scattered to the world. Now, ultimately, there's the apostasy. All of Israel got scattered, both the ten tribes, the Jews, and even the Nephites and Lamanites in America. Now we're to the day where he has cast Israel completely out of the land. Enter the Latter-day Saints. The woman, the bride, is coming back. Verse 14, therefore behold, the day cometh. I've marked all of those phrases where he says, at that day, or in that day, or at that time. The day cometh, saith the Lord, that it shall no longer be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. How many times in the Old Testament, when the Lord wants to talk about his strength, or his mercy, or his greatness, or his commitment to the children of Israel, does he quote Egypt and coming out of Egypt? That was really the sign that God loved his people and was going to protect them and do miracles for them. But now Jeremiah is saying the day will come when that is not the event that will manifest God's greatest power. We won't be telling stories about Egypt and parting the Red Sea. Verse 15, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he hath driven them. I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Now, that goes right in line with what President Nelson said in April Conference 2018. Our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will perform some of his mightiest works between now and when he comes again. We will see miraculous indications that God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, preside over this church in majesty and glory. But I need to read the next sentence. But in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. 
So see that prophecy. See that Jeremiah was told about a glorious restoration and the mighty works of the latter days. And I know those miracles are happening now. They're mostly happening in the lives of Latter-day Saints who are gathering to Zion. I get to surround myself with wonderful Latter-day Saints whose story is a miracle. So in our day, here's what he's going to do. Verse 16, here's the prophecy. I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. We will gather Israel, but first we have to be Israel. We have to be his faithful bride. We have to do everything that they didn't do. Walk in his covenants. Love him. Put his will before our own. And if we do that, we will be the people that all of these prophets foresaw that we would be. In that spirit, can I read to you what was once spoken by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in a fireside in 2004? He said, I have a theory about those early dispensations and the leaders, families, and people who lived then. And clearly, we're talking about Jeremiah as one of them. I have thought often about them and the destructive circumstances that confronted them. They faced terribly difficult times and for the most part did not succeed in their dispensations. Apostasy and darkness eventually came to every earlier age in human history. Indeed, the whole point of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days is that it had not been able to survive in earlier times and therefore had to be pursued in one last triumphant age. We know the challenges Abraham's posterity faced and still do. We know of Moses' problems with an Israelite people who left Egypt but couldn't quite get Egypt to leave them. Isaiah was the prophet who saw the loss of the ten tribes to the north. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were all prophets of captivity. Peter, James, and John, and Paul, the great figures of the New Testament, all saw apostasy creeping into their world almost before the Savior had departed, and certainly why they themselves were still living. Think of the prophets of the Book of Mormon living in a dispensation ending in such painful communication between Mormon and Moroni about the plight they faced and the nations they loved dissolving into corruption, terror, and chaos. In short, apostasy and destruction of one kind or another was the ultimate fate of every general dispensation we have ever had down through time. But here's my theory. My theory is that those great men and women, the leaders of those past ages, were able to keep going and keep testifying to keep trying to do their best, not because they knew that they would succeed, but because they knew that you would. I believe they took courage and hope not so much from their own circumstances as from yours. A magnificent congregation of young adults like you gathered tonight by the hundreds of thousands around the world in a determined effort to see the gospel prevail and triumph. One way or another, I think virtually all of the prophets and early apostles had their visionary moments of our time.
a view that gave them courage in their own less successful areas. Those early brethren knew an amazing amount about us. Prophets such as Moses, Nephi, and the brother of Jared saw the latter days in tremendously detailed vision. Some of what they saw wasn't pleasing, but surely all those earlier generations took heart from knowing that there would finally be one dispensation that would not fail. Ours, not theirs, was the day that gave them heavenly and joyful anticipations and caused them to sing and prophesy of victory. Ours is the day, collectively speaking, towards which the prophets have been looking from the beginning of time. And those earlier brethren are over there still cheering us on in a very real way. Their chance to consider themselves fully successful depends on our faithfulness and our victory. I love the idea of going into battle in the last days, representing Alma and Abinadi and what they pled for and representing Peter and Paul and the sacrifices they made. If you can't get excited about that kind of assignment in the drama of history, you can't get excited. May we be that people. May the tragedy of the failure of Judah and their captivity in Babylon cause us to rise up and be the very people he was pleading them to return and to be. May we be what Jeremiah saw that we would be. And with that, we thank you for your time today. We'll continue next week when we cover the second part of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Thanks again, and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.